Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning, good morning again. It is the 24th of January, 2022. This is the second hour of Mornings with Carmen, and I love being here with you. So thank you so much um, for sharing this time with me. YouTube, which, you know, is the place to be. And I recognize I, I, I don't like broadcast right now on YouTube because let's just say that you didn't want, you won't want to really see behind the curtain right now. No, but Um, Everybody is on YouTube, like everybody. Um, And so YouTube is the place to be if you really want to garner a worldwide audience. And YouTube, therefore, um, when they cast you off their platform, um, it's really significant censorship. I mean, it's one thing, you know, to get, I don't know, blocked from Twitter. There's not a lot of people on Twitter. Just, I mean, there's a lot of people on Twitter, but not compared to the number of people who access uh, YouTube every single day. And so YouTube has labeled uh, John MacArthur's sermon hate speech. Um, and, you know, here's the thing. I'm not, I'm not a person who stands up and defends John MacArthur very often at all. Um, but in this case, I would certainly stand with him as a fellow believer and say he has every right to uh, quote the Bible and then... Um, preach on the content of the Bible and to do so honestly. And so John MacArthur delivered um, a sermon, as he always does, at Grace Community Church in Los Angeles, California, um, about biblical sexuality. And it was uh, a part of something that he was advocating pastors do across the country um, to protest a Canadian law that we that we talked briefly about. Um, this new Canadian law took effect on January the eighth. After it was, um, after it went actually fairly quickly through the Canadian Parliament. So the con- the the bill at the concern of or the center of all of this was this very broadly worded um, ban on. Um, uh, Reparative therapy or conversion, um, conversion, what do they call it, Paul? Conversion What's therapy? The, yeah, conversion therapy. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and so MacArthur advocated that, you know, pastors across the country would, uh, you know, affirm their opposition by speaking out and, you know, preaching on biblical sexuality, you know, all together on a particular Sunday. And so that happened on the first Sunday in January. And so standing in the pulpit, MacArthur said this, quote, there's no such thing as transgender. You are either XX or XY, and that's it. God made man, God made man male and female. That is determined genetically. That is physiology. That is science. That is reality. Um, and, you know, I mean, obviously he goes on to preach a sermon about it, but um, YouTube removed MacArthur's sermon 
from its platform and did so uh, and came right out and said that it was declared hate speech. Quote, our team has reviewed your content and unfortunately we think it violates our hate speech policy. We removed the following content from YouTube. And the content they removed is the sermon. There is no such thing as transgender. You are either XX or XY. That's it. Um, so there will be uh, all kinds of commentary, pushback, criticism of YouTube related to this. But I think each and every one of us has to really consider, like, if I'm just, well, I don't know, that sounds like, that's, I'm minimizing it. If I quote the Bible publicly, if I quote the Bible publicly, is that love speech or is that hate speech? If I quote the Bible publicly, is that love speech or is that hate speech? And who is defining those terms? We'll be right back. So, um, love speech or hate speech, when you read the Bible publicly, out loud in public, on air, here, on the radio, on the internet, in a YouTube video, is that love speech or is that hate speech? And who gets to decide? So, freedom of speech is... uh, a value that we share as Americans. It's actually not a value shared universally around the world. Um, Not everyone is free to speak in the same ways that we are free to speak here in the U.S. And so the Internet becomes an interesting context for this conversation because there's no there are no borders, there's no boundaries um, to its reach. And so when we have this conversation about um, speech, we're not just having a conversation that's limited to the United States of America. But in this case, YouTube is an American com- is a, an American company, and um, John MacArthur is an American citizen, and the words were spoken in America were uploaded to YouTube in America. So there is a, an American part of this conversation as well in terms of the law and censorship and all of those things. So those are going to be interesting conversations going forward, and we will unpack those with people way smarter than me about the law and rights and all of those things. Here's the conversation I thought we could have today. One of the things that John MacArthur says, and I I think he's absolutely right, is that this is reality. Like, Like, this is what I'm talking about is reality, God created man in his image, male and female, he created them. XX, XY. This is reality. This is science. This is physiology. This is biology. It's genetics. This, this is reality. But how do we know that? How do we know what we what we know and or how do we know what we claim to know somebody claims to know that they are male or female but what they claim to know runs contrary to 
the knowledge of everyone else. Are they entitled to their own set of facts? I mean, that is ultimately what this comes down to. So I thought to myself, how do I know what I know? I mean, as Christians, we affirm that reality is what really is like right reality is truth revealed conformed yeah you see that i struggle here a little bit what is reality how do we describe it i mean how does a fish describe the water it's swimming in we affirm that which is really real as christians and i acknowledge that some of what i affirm as real is also unseen which means there are times that I seem irrational or unscientifically minded to people who imagine that what they know is all there is to know and that there's only one way to know things. So ask yourself, how do I know what I know? Now that question and the ways that people answer that question is known as epistemology. And here's the fastest way I could think of to explain epistemology. I'm going to start the first line of a song and you finish it. Ready? Here we go. Jesus loves me. This I know. Did you get it? You're finishing the sentence here. You're finishing the the line of the song. Jesus loves me. This I know. For, did you get it? For the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Now, if you didn't know how to finish the line of that song, then you, in all likelihood, did not grow up in the context of a church or a church nursery um, or a family where the parents or grandparents were Christians, because this is a song that is sung to and then with little children raised in Christian homes. And so if you weren't raised in a Christian family or if being a part of the church is a new experience for you, um, trust me when I tell you, you're going to love this song and you're going to love the rest of this song. It's very simple and it's a profound affirmation that we know much of what we know from God's revelation in the Bible. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. We'll be right back. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes. I know. I just kind of wanted to let it play. All right. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Um, Wound up in this very simple song are several very profound truth claims. I don't know if you've ever thought about Jesus Loves Me, This I Know as a theological song, but it is. Um, It's actually a full uh, four-verse hymn. We'll get to that in just a moment. Um, But wound up in this very simple song, even just in this first stanza, um, are several very profound truth claims. First is that we can know. 
And one of the things that we can know is love. There is a lot in that. You can know love. You can know it. Because it's a person and he has a name. Jesus loves me. This I know. I want you to just rest in that for a moment. The knowledge of love in the person of Jesus. You thought it was just a children's song. It's a profoundly theological treatise, truth claim. Um, So it's not just the knowledge that love exists and that love is real, but the knowledge of a specific lover. It's one thing to say, you know, I live in a universe or a sea of love. It's another thing to say, I am loved. I am loved by a lover of my soul. And his name is Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the specific or specified love here. Jesus loves me. This I know. And the knowledge that we're talking about here is not simply a head knowledge. Because one of the things that I think we have to point out is um, when, when the song makes the claim that this is a knowledge that comes through the Bible, we are talking here about you know, re- revealed truth, revelation, a source of knowledge beyond that which everyone is actually going to understand because you have, it, it's, it's spiritual truth and it's spoken to those who are willing to allow the Holy Spirit to um, indwell us and open us to understand what God has said. So God has revealed in his word everything that is necessary for our salvation. Why everyone doesn't understand that, doesn't receive it, doesn't accept it, is because they don't acknowledge it. So I know this because I not only have read what the Bible says about Jesus and God's love for me and Jesus Christ, but I have acknowledged it. It is an acted upon, a knowledge upon which I act, acknowledge. So I receive it. So um, the way that I know the lover and the love are real is confirmed beyond my feelings. So this isn't, you know, I have felt my way to the love of God in Christ Jesus my heart. No, no, it has nothing to do with that. I mean, do I feel loved by God in Jesus? Yes. Does that matter as much as my knowledge of the love of God in Christ Jesus revealed in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament? No. That's actually my feelings are irrelevant to the love of God. Like, God loves me in Jesus even when I don't acknowledge him. That's a crazy truth doesn't mean I get all the benefits of that love if I fail to acknowledge and receive him. But it doesn't change God's love or the person in whom it's offered, whose name is Jesus. All right. So um, we teach our kids um, to sing 
Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Um, I'm not sure we teach them the rest of the hymn. Jesus loves me, he who died, heaven's gate to open wide. He will wash away my sin. Let his little child come in. Jesus loves me, he who died. Um, oh, that's the same verse. Skipping ahead. Though I'm very weak and ill, that I might from sin be free, bled and died upon the tree. All right, I got to back up. I got to do one again. Sorry. Jesus loves me, loves me still, though I'm very weak and ill, that I might from sin be free, bled and died upon the tree. Jesus loves me, he will stay close beside me all the way. Who hast bled and died for me? I will henceforth live for thee. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. Um, the lyrics uh, first appeared in a novel written by Anna Warner's sister, Susan. Um, and a man named Mr. Bradbury came across the lyrics and added music and a chorus, and it became a, a hymn. And so... Um, there was, uh, you know, Amy Carmichael, um, Irish missionary to India. She was actually converted after hearing Jesus Loves Me during a children's mission in Yorkshire, England. And in 1943 in the Solomon Islands, you may remember that former President John F. Kennedy was, at that point in time, a young man. Um, he was captaining a PT boat, PT-109, it was rammed and it sunk. Now, I know there's a lot of stories related to this um, particular adventure, misadventure. But the islanders of Bayuka Gasa and Ironi Kamana found Kennedy and the survivors um, of his PT boat. And when they went to retrieve the survivors... The, the Marines on board sang along with the natives this song, Jesus Loves Me. How did they know this song? Because missionaries had been there long before World War II arrived. John Stott uh, talks about this particular song as... Uh, as covering all of it, being long enough to last for eternity and deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner and high enough to exalt him to heaven and simple enough for a child to understand. I mean, there, there are stories related to this song that span every nation around the world and penetrating to our hearts as well. My friends, this day, let our epistemology be guided by this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We'll be right back. All right, when you look at the cultural horizon, what do you see? Do you see a gathering storm? That's one way it's been described. Do you see a cultural tsunami? That's the way Jim Dennison sees it. The book is The Coming Tsunami. Jim Dennison from Dennison Forum. Up next. Give and it will be given to you a good measure. Pressed down, shaken together, 
and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. This is Max Locato. It is better to forgive than to hold a grudge. Better to build up than to tear down. Better to seek to understand than to disregard. Better to love than to hate. God's solution for the ills of society is a quorum of unselfish, life-giving, God-loving folks who flow through the neighborhoods and businesses like cleansing agents, bringing in the good and flushing out the bad. They hail from all corners of the globe, reflect all hues of skin, liberal, conservative, rural, metropolitan, young, old, yet they are bound together by this amazing discovery. Happiness is found by giving it away. One of my go-to resources every single day is the Denison Forum. We are privileged to have Jim Denison from the Denison Forum back with us today. Jim, Happy New Year. It's great to, great to talk with you. Now, Carmen, so glad to be with you today. I'm honored by the privilege. Hope all is well with you today. All is well. The Lord is good. Um, this is His day and His year. So it's just a privilege to walk alongside brothers and sisters in Christ as we turn to what are some very challenging days? I'm, I'm anticipating the release of your book, The Coming Tsunami, and want to talk with you about that today. What are you seeing in the culture that has raised your concern to sort of this threat level? Yeah, thank you. And this really, Carmen, is not something I've said in the past. I really just kind of want to say that as kind of a preface here. I believe that biblical Christians, evangelicals, are, fall, are facing a rising tide of opposition that, in my opinion, is unprecedented in American history. And I just have not said that before six months ago as I started doing the research for what is becoming this book called The Coming Tsunami. So the model behind this, this tsunami idea, not something we're real familiar with here in Dallas or y'all maybe where you are. If you're in Hawaii on the Pacific Rim, you're kind of familiar. But a tsunami is a kind of a tidal wave that you do see caused typically by underwater earthquakes you don't see. The earthquake happens offshore, it causes the wave, and by the time the wave gets there, it's too late. I believe there are four cultural earthquakes, two of which are obvious, two less so, that have been going on for decades now, and then some in recent years, that are causing a rising tide of opposition that we just have not seen before. Bottom line, evangelicals are being painted as homophobic, bigoted, prejudiced, narrow-minded, discriminatory, even dangerous to society. And there's a rising tide of opposition that we have to get ready for now so we can redeem these days to the glory of God. So, Jim, you identify these uh, these underwater earthquakes or these unseen earthquakes um, as the rise of a post-truth culture, sexual revolution, critical theory, and secular religion. Um, w- let's just walk through those four uh, you know, briefly and talk about what they are, because I think that how Christians— can then live in the midst of, let's say, a post-truth culture, or how Christians can turn the tide of, of, of a secular, sec, uh, secular religion or sexual revolution, like, those are going to be the important conversations to have in terms of what we do and how we live. Absolutely so. And that's where we want to be redemptive about this. It's always too soon to give up on God. You can't turn back a physical tsunami, but it is always too soon not to believe that God can do what he's done in the past. In fact, desperation always precedes spiritual awakening. 
So let's be praying for that, be looking for that as we're looking to be redemptive. Well, the first earthquake we need to know, as you say, is the denial of biblical truth. This takes us really all the way back to Immanuel Kant and the Enlightenment, and you push it forward through Nietzsche and Derrida and Foucault and the postmodern thinkers. But the bottom line, as you know, is this idea that truth is personal, individual, and subjective that your mind interprets your senses and the result is your truth. My mind interprets my senses, the result is my truth. There can be no such thing as objective truth. 92% of Americans on one survey say they are their own sole determiner of moral truth. That makes the Bible the diary of religious experience. It says, if you're sharing your faith, you're pushing your values on me. It says, if you say Jesus is the only way to heaven, you're intolerant and narrow-minded. The worst thing you can be is intolerant in this culture, because all truth is personal truth. That's what the culture believes, and it makes Christian witness irrelevant, if not oppressive. Okay, personal truth doesn't make any sense apart from truth with a capital T. Like, what, what, what does it even mean for a person to have an individual truth if there is no truth? Like, that seems counter, not just counterintuitive, but counterlogical. Well, that's because it is. You're exactly right. For me to say there is no such thing as absolute truth is to make an absolute truth claim. There is no such thing as truth, and I'm sure of it. So it fails the logic test. It fails the practical test. If all truth is personal, individual, and subjective, then is the Holocaust just Hitler's truth? Is 9-11 just Al-Qaeda's truth? But that's nonetheless where we're headed with this post-truth culture. This idea of post-truth, which Oxford Dictionaries back in 2016 made the word of the year, is tragically where we are as a culture, even though it doesn't work logically, doesn't work practically. So the way we turn that tide is to demonstrate to the culture how my truth is changing my life in a way that you might want to see in your life. Even if you won't listen to my logical arguments, even if you're not concerned about the practical outcomes of speculative subjective truth, if you see Jesus in me, If you see a peace that you don't have, if you see a serenity and a joy you can't find anyplace else, you might consider my truth to be your truth, and when you do, you experience the truth. And that's the pathway in a post-truth culture of turning this tsunami. We're talking with Jim Dennison. Uh, The new book is The Coming Tsunami, Why Christians Are Labeled Intolerant, Irrelevant, Oppressive, and Dangerous, and How We Can Turn the Tide— you can find um, resources every single day at denisonforum.org. Um, I'm wondering, uh, Jim, if you have identified some warning signs that we can look out for to prepare our families for the cultural tsunami. And if so, you could share those warning signs when we come back. All right, we're returning now to our conversation with Jim Dennison from the Dennison Forum. You can find Jim and resources every single day that you're going to want to equip you to walk worthy in the days in which we live, denisonforum.org. Talking today about Jim's brand new book, The Coming Tsunami, which you can find at thecomingtsunami.com. Jim, um, let's talk about the warning signs we can look out for to prepare ourselves and our families for this cultural tsunami that is on the horizon even now. Absolutely. Thank you. So the second earthquake is one answer to that question, which is a denial of biblical morality. We've seen this from the 1960s and the so-called sexual revolution. But now we're seeing that moving forward, Carmen, in a way which says that if you disagree with the sexual revolution, your faith is dangerous and not to be on some level outlawed. So the Equality Act, 
is Exhibit A of what we're describing here. The Equality Act that's already passed the House twice. It's before the Senate now. President Biden promises he'll sign it if it gets to his desk. Not only amends the 1964 civil rights legislation to outlaw discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity, it also precludes any appeal to the 1993 Religious Freedom Restoration Act. So what that means in practice is this. I'm pastoring a church, let's say. We have a person who applies for our staff who's transgender. We choose not to hire that person in part on that basis. They file an, a lawsuit against us. A judge issues an injunction. If we don't obey the injunction, somebody goes to jail. That would be the case with religious schools. That would be the case with religious healthcare organizations. You're talking about 501c3 issues. You're talking about Pell Grants. A third of the funding for faith-based schools typically comes from government grants for scholarships for students. It's a massive turn, and it's based on the belief that my unwillingness to do a same-sex wedding is as discriminatory as if I wouldn't do an African-American wedding as if I were a KKK member wanting to claim religious freedom from my oppressive beliefs. That's exactly what the culture believes about evangelicals and about biblical morality, and that's coming. Whether it's the Equality Act or not, there's a push for the NCAA to bar faith-based schools from participating in their programs. More than 400 so-called woke companies have signed up to support the Equality Act. Every year during Pride Month, we see this with Kellogg's uh, cereals. We see this with Nickelodeon uh, products. We see this across the board. And if you disagree, you're homophobic, bigoted, prejudiced, narrow-minded, discriminatory, and dangerous to society. So watching in that sphere is certainly something we need to be paying attention to. I guarantee you, Jim, that there are uh, folks listening right now saying to themselves, like, you know, how did we get here? Um, and it's one thing for you and I to sort of acknowledge that we live in a time where there's a denial of biblical truth and there's a, a denial of biblical morality. But when, you know, when we say that it's a problem out there, the reality is it's a problem in the church. Like this this idea that we shouldn't do same-sex weddings or we shouldn't participate in them, like that's not just the opinion of the world. That has become the opinion of many people inside the church. So what? how, how, do, we, how do we fix that? I'm so glad you said that. Part of the reason I was so motivated to write the book is my belief the tsunami is already in the church, not just in the external culture, but inside the church as well. The younger a person becomes, the more likely they are on the surveys to be aligned with the secular culture. For instance, a recent survey, 47% of evangelical millennials said sharing their faith was an unfair oppression of other people. 47% millennial Christians. As you look at the surveys relative to sexual morality, whether it's cohabiting, whether it's accepting of same-sex behavior, whether it's LGBTQ activism, you see absolute alignment between people who are in church on Sunday with those who are not. And so you're right, the tsunami is inside the church as well, as this culture from the 60s forward has become so oppressively, overwhelmingly influential in our lives. It started with normalizing same-sex behavior. It moves from then to legalizing then to stigmatizing those who disagree, and now legalizing in such a way that criminalizes those who refuse to participate. And we're in that phase now. Normalizing's already happened. Stigmatizing's already happened. Legalizing's already happened. Now, criminalizing is what the Equality Act would bring forward. And you're right to say it's in the church just as it's in the culture, because people in our church watch television. They go to the movies. They listen to music. They watch the videos. They're with their friends at school. 
and we one hour a week on Sunday are not enough. We've got to be equipping our members to think biblically 24-7, and that's the opportunity before us. So as you say some of those things, Jim, and you make those observations, um, particularly you know, in relationship to how culture changes, normalizing, stigmatizing, legalizing, criminalizing, I'm thinking here that that takes a long time and that often uh, we don't take the long view. You know, we're talking here about something that didn't happen overnight, um, but the effects of which we're now seeing everywhere all the time. Talk with us about uh, what, what kinds of positive signs or evidence we might begin seeing that a cultural tide is turning, because I think people are going to need to know where to look for evidence, um, you know, as, as Christ is applied to the mind and, in, and pressed into life by more and more Christians, like, right, we're going to take it seriously, we're going to pay attention, we're going to do what you tell us to do. Um, what would be the evidence that, the, that a cultural tide might be beginning to turn in a more positive yeah. direction? Great question, and it's already there. The evidence is already there, which is part of the hope that we have for it. Once we identify what's happening, we can begin looking for it. We can see what God is doing about it. None of this surprises God. He is still on his throne. He is still King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So one example comes to mind immediately. Glenn Stanton's recent book, The Myth of the Dying Church, proves documents absolutely in sociological evidence and research that especially for younger generations, there is a fascination with biblical morality, with objective historic truth that's just not being evidenced in ways we typically measure. Not so much on Sunday morning sitting in pews, certainly not in mainline denominational context where you're seeing so much decline. But if you look at Tuesday night Bible studies, if you look at Thursday morning worship services, if you look at college ministries, if you look at youth uh, youth in Christ kind of movement. You're seeing explosive growth. You're seeing growth of orthodoxy as a movement on college campuses right now. You're seeing an explosion of growth in crew, what used to be Campus Crusade for Christ. You're seeing movements in more less traditional models in ways that Glenn Stanton and other people are documenting that are extremely encouraging. If you were to go to the Baylor University Institute for uh, Cultural Studies, you'd see in some of the things that Rodney Stark and others have done there, the same evidence that you're seeing in non-traditional ways overseas as well as here, remarkable growth opportunities. One quick example, I was in uh, Europe in England a few years ago teaching a doctoral program at Oxford University for Dallas Baptist University, where I'm on their faculty. We had a person come in and talk to us about what God was doing in London. He told us that a number of believers had gotten together. They started purchasing and operating coffee shops, literal coffee shops, like Starbucks-type coffee shops, and then allowing artists in the community to display their art on the blank walls in the coffee shops if they would come to a Bible study on a Tuesday night. And they're reaching the artistic community in London in unprecedented ways by building relationships in what we would think of as non-traditional means. God's doing that right now. We're looking around and seeing the Holy Spirit at work in the Muslim world through visions and dreams. More Muslims have come to Christ in the last 15 years than the previous 15 centuries after they're seeing visions and dreams of Jesus. I've been to Cuba 10 times. More than a million Cubans have come to Christ in the last 10 years. There's a spiritual awakening happening in Cuba right now. When I was in Beijing, they told me as many as 100,000 a day are coming to faith in Christ through the underground church in China. Hard to document, but that's their experience. God is on his throne. But Carmen, it boils down to this. In the Bible, God is a king. In our culture, God is a hobby. Mm. If we make God our king, we join the awakening and we reverse the tsunami. 
That's a um, provocative summary right there. You know, in reality, God is king, the king, king of kings, Lord of lords. God is king. I mean, that's reality. Um, In most of our lives, in terms of Americans in the culture today, God is a hobby, seen as a hobby, one among many, um, maybe, like a choice you might make uh, and choose as a hobby. That is a really um, critical assessment. One of the things you have illuminated, Jim, uh, is the difference in the conversation taking place here in the United States of America versus the conversation taking place in the rest of the world. Maybe we conclude with this. You wrote this book about America today, about the United States of America 2021 or 2022. <laughs> yeah, we've had a we've had a change of the year. Um, talk about that, because I think that the, that's critical to this conversation. God is on the move. Pe- there is a great awakening taking place around the world. It's headed here to the United States of America. But what you're saying is we need Christians b- to become desperate for spiritual awakening right here. Um, and help turn the tide of this culture. That's exactly right. There have been four great awakenings in American history, 1734, 1792, 1858, 1904, and 5. Everyone was preceded by desperation, by a sense, God, we need you to do what only you can do. It's not working for you to be my Sunday hobby. I have to make you king of all of my life, every minute of my life. It starts with me. And then once it starts inside the church, it moves out to the culture. Remember the statement in Scripture, if my people called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will they hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. The great evangelist Gypsy Smith was once asked how a revival starts. He says, go home, get a piece of chalk, draw a circle around yourself, get on your knees and pray till everything inside that circle is right with God, and revival will be upon us. So if the takeaway message is for those hearing this conversation to draw that circle, get on their knees with God and say, Lord, let it start with me. Let there be an awakening in my life. And then through my influence across the culture, God will answer that prayer. Jesus will be glorified and we will join what God is doing around the world today. Amen. Each one of us uh, seeking the highest level of influence we can in the in the sphere of influence God has given us. Uh, that we might advance his kingdom always in these days. Uh, Jim Dennison, as always, what a joy to talk with you. You guys can find Jim at dennisonforum.org. Be sure to sign up for uh, the daily email. It's one that I rely on every single day. They also have a great podcast. Uh, And the book we're discussing today, The Coming Tsunami, we have copies to give away. I know you've been waiting to hear me say that. Text the word book to 877-933-2400. Eight four, Jim, what a blessing. Uh, thanks for being with us today. Carmen, thank you for the privilege of the conversation and for all you do every day. God bless. God bless you. All righty. Um, yes, we are giving away copies of the coming tsunami. And yes, I know they're not actually yet available out there in the rest of the world, but we've got copies or we sure will in just any minute um, have copies to give away. The book actually releases tomorrow. So you can text the word book to 877-933-2484 to enter the drawing for Jim Dennison's The Coming Tsunami, Why Christians Are Labeled Intolerant, Irrelevant, Oppressive, and Dangerous, and How We Can Turn the Tide. Uh, This is a book that if you listen to this show, you're going to want. In fact, it's probably going to sound a whole lot like what you hear here. And Uh, It's content that we will continue to unpack over the course of weeks and months um, together as well. 
thank you so much for this time together today. You are precious to me. Uh, I know you've been praying for my health. Please continue to uh, continue to do so. I know you're also now praying for our brother Adam Carrington, um, as well as he battles uh, cancer and. And, and then joyfully joins us uh, to talk about the matters of the day and bring the mind of Christ to bear. Why? Why do we get up and do these things even though we don't feel our best? Well, because the world moves on and God is present in it. And a lot of other people have to get up and do their jobs when they don't feel great as well. So um, we recognize that. We love you. I want to know. I want you to know that I'm thinking about you today. I'll be praying for you uh, as I prepare for tomorrow. The Lord's grace be upon you today in all sufficient measure. May it cover you and flow through you and fill you. God loves you. Know that as you go out into the world that he so loves. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.